0: Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 17. Brethren, join in following my example, and note those who so walk, as you have us for a pattern. For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you, even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, And whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body, that it may be conformed to His glorious body, according to the working by which He is able even to subdue all things to Himself. Therefore, my beloved and longed-for brethren, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved. I implore you, Odia, and I implore Syntyche, to be of the same mind in the Lord. And I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Perhaps you've heard the story, the bizarre story, of Moran Nassari. For 18 years, from 1988 until 2006, Nassari lived in the Charles de Gaulle airport in Paris. Nassari's odyssey began in 1977 in his homeland of Iran. Because of Nassari's protests against the Shah, he was expelled from his country. For a time, he lived as a refugee in Belgium, but Nassari claimed to be half British, and so he decided to seek citizenship in England. In 1988, he boarded a plane for London that connected in Paris. But while in France, someone stole Nassari's briefcase, which contained his refugee papers. Without the proper documentation, the Brits refused to let him into their country. They sent him back to Paris. Yet when he landed without any paperwork, the French immigration officials denied him entrance into France. And since he had no passport, the French had nowhere to deport him. Nassari was a man without a country. The French authorities told him to take a seat in the airport lounge and wait until they figured out what to do about his situation. To make a long story short, he waited 18 years in the airport lounge. Terminal 1 became his home. For almost two decades, Moran Nassari slept on an airport bench. Every morning at 5.30 before the arrival of the first passengers, he shaved in the terminal restroom. Once a week, he washed out his clothes. He pushed his belongings around on a luggage cart. He spent his days reading magazines and lived off the generosity of airport employees who accepted him as one of their own. Throughout his ordeal, Nassari would often go to the doors leading outside of Terminal 1 and breathe in the fresh air, but that's as far as he got. He stayed stuck. If you ever had a frustrating layover in an airport, you know how maddening it can be. You can imagine, an 18-year layover eventually takes its toll. As the years drug on, Nassari grew more and more deranged, agitated. His lawyer said his ordeal made him crazier by the day. A spokeswoman for the Paris airport said of Nassari's case, An airport is kind of a place between heaven and earth. He has found a home here. You know, often as Christians, we feel stuck between heaven and earth. Heaven is still before us, but our layover on this earth can be maddening. Like the man in the airport, Christians can live paralyzed lives. This earth drives us crazy while heaven is still future. We're stuck. We too feel like a person with no country. But here's the message in this morning's text. The Christian life should never be paralyzing. We might be between heaven and earth, but rather than live in limbo, God has called us to embrace both countries. Rather than sit around and wait to go to heaven, we need to get out of the airport, so to speak, and bring heaven to wherever it is that God has us. Notice the bookends of our passage this morning. First, chapter 3, verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven. But then look in chapter 4, verse 2, two sisters in the church are encouraged to settle a squabble, to work out a peace, to show the values of heaven right here on earth. This is why I've entitled this morning's study, Citizens and Sisters. We're citizens of heaven, but we're to live like it on earth. You and I have a purpose here. We're part of the church, God's family, and we need, we've been called to be like-minded. This is why Paul begins in verse 17, "Brethren." Did you know, we're brethren and sisterin, I suppose. We're God's family. And he has put us on display for the world to see. In this letter, Paul has been encouraging the Philippians to be committed to the gospel, to live for the gospel, even die for the furtherance of the gospel. Well, here is the gospel's inevitable effect. To be reconciled with God is to be united with one another. The Roman cross on which Jesus died consisted of two beams, one vertical one horizontal. And the work of Jesus has a dual impact. It reconciles us to God, the vertical, but it also reconciles us to each other, the horizontal. You remember back in chapter 1, verse 5, Paul spoke of their fellowship in the gospel. Paul and the Philippians had bonded around a common cause. The gospel had changed their lives. The gospel could change the world. And together they were committed to seeing its triumph over sin and darkness. They were stakeholders in the gospel. Paul and the Philippians were blood brothers. In fact, notice how Paul refers to the Philippians in chapter 4, verse 1. He says, my beloved and longed for brethren, my joy and crown. They were not just brethren and sistren, but they were beloved. He calls them that twice in this one sentence. You see, this church was in Philippi. Paul was 700 miles from Philippi in Rome, but he wanted to be with them. The Philippians were Paul's peeps, longed for brethren. I have no doubt if the jail in Rome that housed Paul had Wi-Fi, Paul probably watched the Philippian Philippian live stream on his computer. He was probably thankful for Facebook. But better than streaming... Paul wanted to be there in person. Notice he longed for the Philippians. They were his family. And he would have never used Facebook as a substitute for face-to-face. His togetherness with the Philippians was a statement of their solidarity in Jesus. You know, sometimes people ask me, Pastor Sandy, how can I encourage you? And my answer is always simple. Come to church. Just be here. Hey, you know, the way I know you care about me and the way you know that I care about you is for us to come together. Despite what we say, if we're too busy to get together, it sends the opposite message. Paul even calls them my joy and my crown. It was the Philippians that brought Paul a deep abiding pleasure. He considered them his reward, a crown or treasure. Fellow believers were his pleasure and his treasure. And yet some of you might think, but I'm just not a people person like Paul. You know, Paul was such an extrovert. That's not me, Pastor Sandy. I'm more of a loner. Well, if that's you, can I ask you a question? How do you measure up on the joy meter? How do you measure up? I mean, if you're going in alone, is your life full of pleasure and treasure, or are you empty a lot of the time? You see, God made us, and then God saved us for fellowship. Fellowship with Him. Fellowship with each other. And this is especially needed when the flag of our lives flies at half-mast in times of loss, and grief, and suffering. Where does your joy come from then? Most often, it comes through the friends who care for us. I read about an African innovation found in the major cities of Zimbabwe. It's a simple park bench with a higher purpose. It's called the fellowship bench. See, there's an expression in the local language that gets translated, thinking too much. It's what we call depression. People in Zimbabwe who suffer from depression, they have nowhere to go. The country has 13 psychiatrists for its 13 million people. And most of the locals are skeptical of professionals in lab coats. But someone came up with the idea of the fellowship bench. A respected member of the individual communities volunteers to take some time and spend it sitting on the bench. Just to be available for people to come and talk. They listen. These people care. They often refer the hurting person to someone else in the community that can take them under their wing. And statistics show that 87% of those who have taken advantage of the fellowship bench have shown improvement in their condition. It's changing lives in Zimbabwe. This is what I believe. This is what I hope our church chairs can become. A fellowship bench. When we agree that we're brothers and sisters, when we really make a commitment to be here for one another, our caring can heal. The love and joy of Jesus flows through us to each other. But this takes leaders. This takes some believers among us who aren't afraid to make their lives available and transparent. Believers like Paul Who'll set an example. And this is why he writes Brethren, join in following my example and note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. Realize Christian living is one of those things in life that is better taught than it is caught. I'm sorry, better caught than it is taught. Some things are that way. They're just something you catch on to. You can't, somebody can't really just sit down and, and instruct you on them. It's something you just have to go and do, like fishing or like changing your oil or something else. But they're better caught than they are taught. You probably learn to pray by listening to someone else pray. Most people begin to share their faith after watching someone else who shared their faith. You know, whenever I'm around my grandkids these days, I'm reminded of that old saying, monkey see, monkey do. For little kids love to imitate. They learn this way. They learn more by watching the behavior of others. And this is how Christians learn as well. We imitate too. That's why we need good examples. Here Paul asked the Philippians to follow folks who set a godly example. I'm asking us, to not only follow, but to be such an example as well. You see, for there were people on the edges of the early church who were not setting the right example. There were false teachers out on the fringe. And like my golf ball, a new Christian can get lost if he doesn't fly straight down the fairway and instead rolls off into the rough, into the fringe. Paul states in verse 18, For many walk of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. Notice it brought tears to Paul's eyes that not everyone who said they represented Christ actually did so. It's interesting, persecution was no threat to Paul. In Philippi, he had been beaten and thrown into jail. And how did he react? He was singing praises to God. But when falsehood threatened the faith of the church, it caused Paul to weep. In Paul's estimation, what a sad scenario it was that believers had to cultivate a healthy suspicion of other people who claim to be believers, but we do. Earlier in chapter 3, Paul mentioned the false teachers that he had in mind. He said, beware of the mutilation. That was a derogatory term for Jews who mandated circumcision. These were the Sabbath insisters, the kosher keepers. These were Jews who taught that for Gentiles to be saved, they first had to become Jews. This meant that Jesus alone was not enough for salvation. A person also needed to be circumcised and eat only Hebrew national hot dogs and worship on Saturday and any other legalistic thing they chose to tag on. Paul taught that adding any requirement for righteousness other than faith only cheapened Christ's work on the cross. See, if you or I could do anything to make ourselves right with God, then Jesus would have never had to die in our place. The cross of Christ would have been unnecessary. This is why salvation is by faith alone. Even today, they're enemies of the cross. They're people, they're even preachers who try to minimize its importance. There are folks today embarrassed by the cross. They view it as an insult to modern sensibilities. Oh, that bloody, gory cross. But apart from that cross, there is no remission for sins. If not for the cross, we'd all go to hell. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Reminds me of an old poem. You're just out of date said young Pastor Bates to one of our faithful old preachers who carried for years in travel and tears the gospel to poor sinful creatures. You still preach on Hades and shock-cultured old ladies. With your barbarous doctrine of blood, you're so far behind you'll never catch up. You're a flat tire stuck in the mud. For some little while, a bit of a smile enlightened the old preacher's face. Being made the butt of ridicule's cut didn't ruffle his sweetness and grace. He turned to young bait, so suave and sedate. Catch up, did my ears hear you say? Why, well, I couldn't succeed if I doubled my speed. My friend, I'm not going your way. Paul and the false teachers were headed different directions. Paul prized the cross these Jews despised. But there was more to these false teachers than just their devotion to legalism and their rejection of the cross. In verse 19, Paul describes their character in four phrases, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. He notes their destiny, their idolatry, their infamy, and their carnality. First Paul says of them, whose whose end is destruction. Oh, these false teachers, they talked about heaven. Oh, heaven's bright lights, it's streets of gold. They talked about heaven, but they were headed for hell. The Greek word destruction most likely refers to eternal damnation. Remember, it was from the cross that Jesus told the thief, today you'll be with me in paradise. The cross is the passport to heaven. You don't cross over into heaven if you're an enemy of the cross. Second, Paul says of these false teachers, whose God is their belly. Paul says this mockingly. They worship their own pleasures and luxuries and self-gratification. Oh, the false teachers claim to love God, but in reality, they used God to satisfy themselves and indulge their appetites. Guys, beware of greed in a clerical collar. Beware of hedonism with a Bible in its hand. It's out there. There are preachers who use the God they say they worship to satisfy their real God, which is their belly, which is their own lusts. It should bring tears to our eyes that these people are still around. And then third, Paul says of these false teachers whose glory is in their shame. In other words, they glorify what is shameful. Shameful. Paul is saying that the false teacher who gets his kudos from the culture for giving religious sanction to the perversions of his day, that he has gloried in what is shameful. Oh, society hails this man as broad minded. Whoa, he's way ahead of his time. He's progressive. He's courageous. Unlike that Paul over there who's stuck in his puritanical past. Over the years of my ministry, There have been plenty of hot-button issues where pastors have been pressured to compromise. I remember people asking, hey, why do you have to be married to have sex? People ask that. And then it it was divorce. Hey, can't you divorce your spouse for just any reason? Today's hot-button issue is, what's wrong with people acting on their same-sex attraction? But if I didn't compromise then, why do you think I'd compromise now? What the Bible says it means. If the Bible prohibits something, it's for our own good, and it's timeless. The truths of the Bible are timeless. The Bible tells us that all sexual behavior between people outside of heterosexual marriage is shameful. I believe the biblical restrictions on sex were authored by our Creator for our good and for His glory. And though it might not be cool to point that out, it's being faithful. Here's the fourth point about the false teachers in Philippi. They set their mind on earthly things. This is the bottom line. See, here's the genesis of all their falsehoods. They took their cues from the culture rather than from the scripture. Hey, I hear society's arguments. I recognize the logic. If there is no God, if the Bible isn't true then why not do as you please? Why not make up your own rules? Problem is, I can't buy into that premise. The Bible has been a reliable moral compass for 4,000 years. It's God's Word, divinely inspired. I have studied it. I have tested it. I have proven its truths. I have more confidence in my Bible today than I did 39 years ago when I first gave my life to Jesus. The Bible is wisdom from heaven, and that's where I choose to set my mind. Charles Spurgeon lived in a bygone era, but his words are so appropriate for our day. He wrote, Many say that we ought to keep abreast of the times, whatever that may mean, and there is a certain spirit of the age to which we should be subject. This to me is treason against sovereign truth. I know of only one spirit to which I desire to be subject, and that is the spirit of all the ages who never changes. Let the times and the spirits go where they like. We shall keep to the Holy Spirit and to his eternal teachings. Cling to God's word. Cling to infallible and immutable revelation. Whatever novelty comes up, Keep to the word of Jesus. Whatever discovery may be made by the wise men of the age, let Christ be wisdom to you. Here is our anchorage. The book is our ultimatum. This is where I take my stand. The Bible speaks to us. It doesn't shout like the militant voices we hear today. It doesn't project in HD like media propaganda might do. But oh, the still small voice of the Holy Spirit reiterates that despite what men might say, God will have the final word. And I want to listen to God. I want to follow Him. I love the advice of C.S. Lewis. Aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. As Paul said to the Colossians, Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. But in contrast to these false teachers, Paul says in verse 20, for our citizenship is in heaven. Guys, this world is not our final stop. Life is just a layover. Unlike that man stuck in the airport, we're passing through. In the verbiage of air travel, this life is a connection We are ticketed to a final destination, which is heaven. As Paul said earlier, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. If you're a Christian, don't get comfortable in the here and now. Why worry about pleasing this world and living up to its standards? Our citizenship is in heaven. See, Christians are ambassadors. We live in a place that's not our home. We take orders from elsewhere. We're here only for a time and for one reason, to represent our King. And relatively speaking, it's a very brief time. For Paul writes this, For our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet here's another sentiment that's fallen out of favor with today's church. The idea of an imminent rapture. Today, the belief that Jesus is coming when we least expect Him to snatch to heaven those who belong to Him is scoffed at by some and downplayed by most. You know, when I became a Christian in 1978, there was a buzz in the air, there was an excitement. We were all eagerly anticipating the Lord's return. In fact, whenever two believers would part from each other, one might say to the other, Hey, I'll see you here, there, or in the air. How many times did we say that to each other, James? It was our common way to say goodbye. I'll see you here, there, or in the air. That didn't mean we bailed out on this life, that we didn't understand our responsibilities to the here and now. It just meant that we were so in love with Jesus, we got excited about the thought of suddenly seeing him. Christians today are told, oh, don't expect a rapture. We're not promised a sudden escape. Rather than pie in the sky, our focus should be on making this world a better place. I acknowledge that we need to manage God's creation in responsible ways. But making this world a better place, that's a stopgap measure. The Bible says we live on a disposable planet. Only heaven is eternal. Yes, let's make an earthly difference while we can. And the best way to do so is by leading folks to Jesus. But guys, our citizenship is in heaven. Our bodies are on this earth, but our hearts and hopes and heads should be in heaven. Paul told us in Ephesians 2, verse 6, that we've been made to sit together in heavenly places in Christ. I'm sure you've heard the worn-out old phrase Don't be so heavenly-minded that you're no earthly good. But that's rarely true. In fact, read the annals of church history, and you'll find that the Christians who were the most earthly good were the exact ones who were the most heavenly-minded and in touch with their Savior. It's heaven's citizens. It's believers who long for their Savior, who care most about those He died to save. And there is a big reason that we should be longing for the Savior. We find it in verse 21. For he will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body. What a day that's going to be. According to Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, this is going to happen at the rapture. There a metamorphosis will take place. All of us caterpillars come out of our cocoons and become butterflies. Our bodies will be transformed. A miracle will occur. These corruptible bodies, Paul says, must put on incorruption. A body that was serviceable on this earth will suddenly be fitted for heaven. And after what I went through this week, I am longing for this glorious transformation. From Tuesday through Thursday, yours truly was sick with a stomach bug. Aren't you glad there's a distance between us this morning? I might not have anybody shake my hand at the door today. Paul talks about our lowly body. Well, after what you I went through this week, several rounds of the gut rot I endured, all it takes to remind us of our lowly body, how lowly our lowly body might be is what I went through this week. A man is stripped of all dignity when he's on his knees, bear hugging a toilet. It might not mean anything to you, but I got real excited this week as I read of laying aside the frailties and indignities of this body and joining Jesus in his glory. What a day that's going to be. On the cross, Jesus paid the price to restore everything that sin has defiled. And that includes our lowly bodies. Thus, at the rapture, we'll all credit the cross. And when it happens, it'll be one more proof of our Lord's ultimate triumph. For notice Paul adds in verse 21 that this transformation occurs according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. Hey, if Jesus can revive corpses in caskets and ashes in urns and sort out the body parts that we might have loaned out, if he can pull off a transformation of that magnitude then can you imagine the wonder-packed world for which we're headed? What other miracles await our reborn eyes? Heavenly citizenship is far more valuable than you think. Here's Paul's point. If you were a settler headed out west on a wagon train, and suddenly you got pinned down by a band of Indians, and you knew the U.S. cavalry was just over that hill, where would your eyes be focused? This is why we need to look to Jesus. Guys, the cavalry's coming. And if the Savior is on his way, for those of us who are waiting on him, we can't stop fighting. We can't give up. We can't give in. And thus Paul writes in chapter four, verse one, therefore, my beloved and long-for brethren, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, Beloved. If you're living for Jesus, if you're living for heaven, you will stand up for Jesus on this earth. Heavenly citizenship affects our conduct and relationships here and now, which brings us to those two sisters. As strange as it sounds, I've entitled our passage this morning, Citizens and Sisters. And there were two Christian sisters in Philippi. Paul addresses them in verse 2. I implore you, Odia, and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Now, whatever you do here, don't miss the obvious. Imagine yourself in this little bitty church at Philippi. When suddenly, Epaphroditus, he's reading along the letter that he had brought back from Rome. He's gone through the first three chapters. He gets now to chapter four. Remember, this is written by your hero, the hero of the faith, the apostle Paul, no less. I mean, what if I'm preaching and surprisingly, I address you by name in my sermon? Would you be shocked? You'd certainly perk up. All of a sudden, this sermon would get real personal. Now you know how my daughter-in-law feels. (coughs) Imagine Euodia and Sintiki. They're on opposite sides of the room. They've been squabbling for weeks now. Their goal this morning was just to get through church without bumping into each other. So far, so good. And they're enjoying hearing Paul's letter. All this theology is interesting. It's encouraging. When all of a sudden, shockwaves fill the room. For right on the heels of our citizenship is in heaven, they hear this. I implore Euodia and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. It's like girls, girls, girls. Imagine hearing your name in God's word. I ran across a cartoon. I really like this cartoon. Euodia says to Syntyche, I don't know why he listed me first since you're the one who started it. (laughs) I don't know if that was a reaction, but I'm sure of their shock. I mean, the whole church was surprised. How did Paul even know? I mean, why did he even care? I mean, Paul is about to appear before the Caesar and testify of the gospel. Why does a tiff between two women 700 miles away in Philippi even show up on his radar? And here's the answer. Our citizenship in heaven is validated by our relationships on earth. Paul doesn't want to be in Rome fighting for a grand cause that two gals in Philippi are undermining with a petty disagreement. Citizens in heaven are good sisters on earth. Commentaries point out that the original language indicates that both ladies were at fault here. Apparently, there was enough blame to go around. It wasn't just one-sided. And it seems that Euodia and Syntyche should have known better. For in verse 3, Paul says of them, They labored with me in the gospel. These weren't novice Christians. They were experienced, perhaps leaders in the church. They had helped Paul, but they had also been a burr in each other's saddle. That such a situation would exist shouldn't surprise us. I hope you understand there's no friction-free family. There's no conflict-free church. Perhaps you've heard the jingle. To live above with saints we love will certainly be glory. But to live below with saints we know, well, that's a different story. Get people together, even Christian people, and there's bound to be disagreements, some hurt feelings, even heated exchanges. Don't be shocked when humans, even redeemed humans, act like humans. Definitely, don't let it unravel your faith when certain Christians don't get along. It happens. Pray for them. Try to be a peacemaker if you can, not a finger pointer. I like the solution that Paul proposes. He never condemns these ladies. He implores them. In verse 2, he challenges them. Be of the same mind in the Lord. Rather than get into the details, who was right, who was wrong, the she said, she said kind of thing, Rather than get lost in the weeds, he reminds the girls that they're in the Lord. Paul believes in their sincerity. The Spirit of God lives in them. And if they have a will to do it, he knows that God will make a way. He'll lead them to an agreeable resolution. The biggest hurdle to cross is the will to do it. And if they need help, Paul writes in verse 3, And I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Euodia and Syntyche were members of a family, and so Paul calls on its other members to help them. And this is what a healthy church does. It intervenes at times in people's lives It helps resolve conflicts and settle disputes between husbands and wives, between parents and children, even between squabbling sisters. Over the years, we've been involved in all the above. Of course, this is difficult and dangerous and messy work. That's why Paul had to urge the Philippi pastor, the man he calls true companion, to jump into the fray. I suppose this pastor was reluctant to get in the middle of two strong women lest he get caught in the crossfire. After counseling Euodia and Syntyche, it's possible this pastor might have charged the church for combat pay. It's also interesting that Paul doesn't name his true companion. Notice that. A lot of speculation here. Who was it? Was it Timothy? Was it Luke? Maybe Epaphroditus? We just don't know. But I suspect that's according to plan. Settling disputes and resolving conflicts are often thankless tasks that never get recognized by others. I don't think it's a coincidence that we end up knowing the names of the two troublemakers, but not the peacemaker. That's the way it usually works. I think that's the way God likes it. He sees. He knows. Jesus said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And that's recognition enough. I hope you know Calvary Chapel is open for business, not just one day a week. Oh, We preach God's word on Sundays, but we also help folks live it out Monday through Saturday. And part of our role is to help resolve conflicts when we can. But notice it's not just the pastor's job to help these girls resolve their squabble. For Paul also recruits Clement. And Clement must have benefited greatly. He must have gotten involved, and he must have benefited greatly by helping Odia and Syntyche put an end to their grievances because there is evidence of his similar efforts later. One of the oldest extra-biblical books that we possess is entitled Clement's Letter to the Corinthians. It's not in the Scriptures. It's extra-biblical, but it goes way back in the writings of the church. Church history recognizes that it was written by this Clement, this man mentioned in Philippians. Clement ended up becoming one of the first bishops of Rome, Paul's successor. And when the church in Corinth erupted in dissension again, he was the one who wrote the letter to dissolve the schism and to restore unity to the church. It could be that this episode had taught him some vital lessons. But the duty to help Odia and Syntyche get over themselves wasn't just left to the pastor and to Clement. Look who else is encouraged to get involved. Paul writes, And the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. If your name is written in the Lamb's book of life, and I hope it is. If it's not, you're not going to heaven." If your name is written in the Lamb's book of life, then you've also been called to keep the peace in the family of God. See, unity isn't just the job of the pastors or the elders, but the entire family. For we are all both citizens and sisters, or brethren, citizens of heaven, but brothers and sisters on earth. Christians are not stuck. Between heaven and earth, we're headed to heaven, but we're to be active on this earth. Be heavenly minded. Look to Jesus, not the spirit of this age. Embrace the cross and God's truth. Care for others. Even dare to be an example. And let's convene heaven now in our relationships with one another.